You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Welcome, listeners, to this first summer episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, this is our June episode, and you're only going to get one this month, so uh, we hope you like it. Uh, with me this week, as in all the previous ones, is Michael Farmer. How are you doing, Michael? Oh, I'm uh, present, is about all. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can say. It's VBS week at my church, so in the morning, my wife and I go and work VBS, and then in the afternoon and evening, we pack so that I can move to Minnesota. So it is a, <laughs> it's a very busy, very tiring, very aggravating week. Uh, it sounds action-packed, and also having an action-packed week is Nathan Gilmore. How are you, sir? I'm also doing VBS, so like Michael, my brain is mush right now from dealing with third and fourth graders. But what is uh, it? Glad- what is it that takes so much out of you when you do VBS? I, I mean, <laughs> I teach college. I have way more students than this. I, it's more academically rigorous. I'm working in the kitchen for crying out loud, and I still come home every day and want to do nothing but lay in bed and uh, watch Famitas and go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I. Mm. That's that's a mystery, man. Um, also with us is a special guest, uh, Luke Chandler. Uh, hi, Luke. Hey, how you doing, David? Uh, doing really well. Uh, Luke, uh, well, he, he's he's with us for for certain uh, academical and intellectual reasons, but he also happens to have uh, married my lovely cousin Melanie, and they have, uh, well. Wonderful, beautiful children. Um, three, yes? Yes, three of them. Holy okay. cow. I'd like, like to add, I'm not doing VBS this week, but my brain is still mush. Yeah. <laughs> you have three kids of your own. I think that I think that that's roughly equivalent to us dealing with 40 of them for four hours a day. Yeah, my oldest one's five, and so it goes Ooh. down from there. So it's just, every day is an adventure. Goodness yeah. gracious. I don't, uh, and uh, because... Um, well, because Katie and I live in Georgia and, uh, Luke and Melanie live in Florida, but, but our mutual relatives are all in Alabama. I think the, the timing of various visits has been such that I, I don't think I've met your third child, Luke. Well, today's the second birthday of all things. Yeah, I, I know that's absurd, <laughs> but you know, such is life. Um, Luke is our guest, uh, not, however, because he married my cousin, at least not directly because of that. That's how I know him. Um, but because he has also had hands-on experience in participating in archaeological digs, uh, in particular some digs in uh, Israel itself uh, that have uh, 
direct uh, direct ties, direct uh, connections with uh, the archaeology of uh, biblical times, particularly uh, Old Testament uh, eras. So this week, our topic uh, is going to be archaeology, in particular, uh, its relationship to the Bible, how we understand it, uh, how we interpret it. Um, so uh, I guess to start off, well, before we start off, do we have any feedback or any news or anything like that? What we <laughs> well, we have a boatload of feedback on the blog. Uh, I posted a series of posts on recent controversies, discussions, whatever you want to call them, uh, surrounding certain Christian colleges and denominations. Uh, folks who want to log, uh, to those who have commented, I promise that if I have not responded to your comments by the time this goes online, I will in fact get back to those comments. We've got, what, what would you say, Michael, probably a dozen responses to those posts that I still need to get back to. Many, many, and of course I have not touched that topic with a 49 and a half foot pole. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, have, I have remained silent. So You can also look forward to not hearing me respond to, to uh, the people's objections. Nice. Well, yeah. Well, Nathan like likes kicking ant beds, so you know that's <laughs> that's, that's kind of your thing. Yeah, it really um, is. Also, news and uh, for those of you who uh, who might have skipped out on fifty point one, uh, the the short special episode that Michael and Nathan recorded, and thanks guys, by the way, mm -hmm. um, they announced uh, on my behalf that uh, I'm I am also employed. So Nathan Gilmore is an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Georgia. Uh, Michael Farmer uh, will be an assistant professor at Crown College in Minnesota. And I will be an assistant professor of English at uh, Central Christian College in Kansas. So uh, we all have jobs now. We're all employed and uh, in in uh, what looks like the kinds of colleges that, uh, well, we've been talking about for so many different episodes. So send so your kids to Crown or Central or Emmanuel, and we'll uh, conform and, them to yes. our image. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Um, uh, I... And then we're going to have another episode in July, but um, I reckon we can we can talk about that when we round out this particular conversation. Uh, but back to it. Um, I was so excited, almost dove right into it without doing any kind of uh, sort of uh, podcasty or bloggy housekeeping. Um, archaeology. Now, Luke, almost everything that I know about archaeology has come from rather dubious sources. For instance, um, I have the impression that bullwhips are involved, um, uh, so that, that might be, need to be corrected. Um, could you share briefly what archaeology is and what it's like, practically speaking, to do the work of an archaeologist? Sure. Well, of course, you don't just need the bullwhip. You also need a revolver and a fedora. And that rounds out. <laughs> yes. What what year of graduate school do you learn how to use that whip, Luke? <laughs> well, that's, a, <laughs> that's right before your thesis. Right now, what our listeners might not know is that Michael Farmer actually uses those to teach freshman comp. So, well, I don't use a revolver. <laughs> I use the bull whip in a chair. <laughs> well, to answer your question. Um, 
Yeah, of course. Uh, I had a I had an undergraduate course in Greek in archaeology of Greece, and we actually watched Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, during that course, and had an essay on it for our final exam. Uh, basically, how much information did Indiana Jones destroy in the Well of the Souls? We had to write an essay on this. <laughs> <laughs> but um, obviously, <laughs> obviously, uh, an archaeologist does not go out there with a with a bullwhip. Uh, they they all do have hats that or some variation on a fedora. It's it's interesting. Uh, I think everyone claims to hate Indiana Jones, and yet they all secretly want to be Indiana Jones, maybe just for the girls, if nothing else. But um, an archaeologist, they go out there, they have a pickaxe, a spade, you know, a trowel, um, not really shovels, that's kind of very 1920s, but uh, it's, it's a very methodical, systematic thing. And uh, Indiana Jones makes it popular, but he's not really a good archaeologist. He's a treasure hunter, and uh, I guess we know that. Uh, and, the, and the well of the souls, all these inscriptions on the walls, and you know, where are the snakes coming from? What are they eating? You know, and there are all these questions. But he knocks down a big, massive statue to smash through a wall. You know, it lights fires down in sensitive archaeological sites. Bad, bad, bad. Um, to be but, fair, uh, he does keep the artifacts out of the hands of the Nazi regime. Well, that's true. I guess that's the real point. <laughs> <laughs> But um, and there's, uh, Dan Dawson, I hope you're listening, and I hope you appreciate this. <laughs> well, with, with archaeology, you almost you don't very often find some fantastic thing like you know, like the Ark of the Covenant, or even a golden idol. You don't find booby traps that are centuries old and yet still function. Uh, you uh, mo- mostly what you find is other people's junk, uh, broken plates, cups, pots. Um, things like that. Once in a while, you'll find maybe an inscription or maybe a couple letters you know, that were written down, but that's actually rare too. Most of it appears very mundane. You find animal bones. Um, if you're lucky, you find some human bones. Of course, that's not always a big deal, uh, really, as far as what you're trying to gain. You're really just trying to look for leftovers for the material culture that, to learn about how they lived. And uh, it's it's really a very interpretive science. It's a very destructive science because uh, you can only do it once. Uh, to get down to the past, you have to basically disassemble and destroy everything above it to get down there. Um, so you have to go through very carefully. Whenever you find anything, you photograph it, record it, preserve everything you possibly can. You know how you found it, the angle it's lying, what layer you find it in. Because once you take it out, it's gone, and you can never put that back. Mm. So, um, yeah, so it's a destructive science. And, um, and you have to really, uh, most things that were produced in antiquity will never, ever be found uh, for a number of reasons. They were destroyed. You just never dig in the right space. Or maybe you're digging towards some fantastic object. But then you find something very interesting above it and stop digging and make it a tourist site. And so you never go any further down and find you know, something fantastic. Uh, of course, you never know if you've actually done that. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Yeah. But it, it's just a very slow process. Usually at a site, um, you measure progress each day in centimeters, uh, usually. And um, you go very slowly to try to make sure you don't miss anything. So it's it's a work of patience. And uh, and usually takes years before you can research and understand everything you found. So it's not something for instant gratification, uh, usually. something Sometimes you may find something like that, but it's not very often. And that's not what you just expect to find at every site every day. Mm. So, you know, just to to get some kind of estimate and the the you've been going back to the same particular site uh for the past several years, yes? Yes. Yes. Uh so 
in the in the course of a day or a week or the course of uh, the the entire uh, the, the 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 entire time that you're at the dig, how how deep will you go? Yeah, there are a lot of things that affect that. Uh, it depends on what you find. Uh, if you find a floor level of some house or a building, all the good stuff is usually on the floor. Um, mm. You'll find you know, collapsed rocks or debris from a roof or a wall, and you might find something in there, but usually not. Usually, whatever collapsed it caused everything to fall on the floor first, and it's underneath all the collapse. So if you, uh, you may go relatively fast just picking out big rocks or something, but once you find a floor level, you slow down. And you go very carefully, you often will sift every bucket of dirt you pull up to find, you know, fragments, bones, coins, you know, beads, uh, anything that might be there. Um, it's, it really depends on what you're finding. Uh, right. it, 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 it's a pretty slow thing, uh, all things considered. But it's a steady thing. And uh, when you find something great, of course, it makes it all worthwhile. Cool. And uh, if, if, if I've understood what I've read correctly, you all have found some some pretty neat things at the site you've been at, but we'll get back to that later. Um, now, of course, we're, uh, this, this isn't just a conversation about archaeology general, uh, in general, but it, it's relevance to our understanding of the Bible. And I think the best way to show something's relevance is to imagine its absence. Um, you know, for instance, before modern archaeology or without knowledge of it, uh, how did Christians, or how do Christians, imagine life in biblical times, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Um, you know, the, I can think of a, f of a few examples of that. For instance, uh, just about every popular depiction I've ever seen of the of the Exodus story has Hebrew slaves building the pyramids. <laughs> right. Which, uh, if I understand conventional chronologies of, of Egyptian archaeology, um, most archaeologists think the pyramids, uh, at least the Great Pyramid, would have been built long before uh, any period in which Hebrews would have been there. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Um, they were already centuries old by the time Abraham would have seen them. Well, and of course, the Bible nowhere claims that the Hebrew slaves built the pyramids. That's something right. people just kind of assume because it's the only thing they know about Egypt. Right, right, because it's a large visible structure. We want to connect it with the one significant story that we've got from that region. Right. Um, uh, another kind of illustration of, the, of, of this issue of what, what did we think before archaeology is if you look at... Uh, art, uh, artistic depictions of, of biblical stories. And just for an example, I, I, I did a Google search and pulled up art depicting the, uh, the fight between David and Goliath. Um, you know, there's an Anglo-Saxon manuscript with an illumination of it, and in it, those, uh, the characters of David and Goliath are armed uh, in, in a way that is completely indistinguishable from any other warrior character in an Anglo-Saxon manuscript. They're carrying right. uh, Viking-style swords, and they have uh, Anglo-Saxon-style shields and helmets and all the rest of it. Right. And even better, a, the poetic treatment of the Exodus in the Anglo-Saxon corpus uh, has Moses going off to part the Red Sea, and he's gone so long, and the people of Israel get so nervous that they actually get their chainmail out and don it and form up a shield wall to fight the Egyptians. Uh, Anglo-Saxon style, 
and uh, Moses has to come back and tell them, no, 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 we're we're supposed to cross the Red Sea at this point. <laughs> so, so it sounds like it sounds like what archaeology does for biblical interpretation is it lets us know that things have not always been as they are now. It keeps us from identifying too, uh, ancient societies too closely with our own societies. Is that is that accurate? Yes. yes. Yeah, and Luke, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, you know, at my own seminary, our education in archaeological processes was almost nil. I'll go ahead and admit that uh, fairly early in the episode here. And uh, one of the things I'm curious is, I mean, I know that a general sense of historical change really sort of arises in the late Renaissance, early Enlightenment period. I know that archaeology is one facet of that. Uh, what would you say are some of the particular contributions of archaeology as distinct from uh, things like modernistic history, uh, things like intellectual history and the Hegelian mode? I mean, what does archaeology in particular contribute to our sense of that history? Oh, it, it really tells us how uh, it tells us how people, ordinary people lived day to day. That's a big part of it. Uh, archaeology is often associated with um, anthropology. I mean, just it's uh, they're related fields; they they link together. And uh, at where I'm digging, uh, there's a big, a strong biblical connection to the site I'm digging. But one of the big, fo one big focus there is just learning how the inhabitants lived day to day. What what did their houses look like? What can we figure out about their daily lives? Uh, because take I mean, in the Bible story, in the Bible you have you know stories, you know great stories of faith. But always in the background, you know, when that person did whatever great deed it was, they went home at night. And what did they come home to? Um, you know, what were their neighbors like? And uh, mm -hmm. it, I think it really, one thing it really helps us do is it establishes the separate, the unique nature of that ancient culture. You know, its beliefs, its practices, you know, its uh -huh. differences from us. But it also connects it in some ways that day to day people generally are the same and they worry about the same sorts of things. Uh, spend their time trying to do things, you know, provide for themselves and their families. And uh, one big insight it gives us is how is it kind of brings it down to earth. That's that's my belief anyway. Okay, that's uh, good. That's good because one of the things that Hegel got, uh, very rightfully gets the reputation for is the so-called great man theory of history. And it's interesting that you say archaeology is you know the study of the common people because that's precisely what you find in a collapsed house. <laughs> exactly. We we found Israelite houses. That's, that's what they're called. Uh -huh. And um, you learn a lot. It, it Sometimes it illuminates things in the Bible. Like uh, one time the prophet Nathan went to King David and uh, to accuse him of sin, but used a story about a, a man you know, that kept a little lamb inside his house. And they found inside some of these Israelite houses uh, residue from animals inside the house, indicating that at least sometimes they keep an animal inside the house with them or for whatever reason. Oh, okay. And huh. so it kind of it illuminates a story. It just, it's a common, ordinary thing. We may not think about, you know, it says that the lamb would eat off his table. You know, he'd sit in his lap, and we think, you know, that's not what happens on a farm. But right. apparently there were cases where they did that. They kept an animal inside the house with them. So, Everyone you know, knows that only dogs and cats are allowed to have table scraps. <laughs> no, no sheep. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, we, it takes the great heroes of the Bible and makes them something more ordinary than just Superman or, you know, some Kryptonian superhero of faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, another question uh, in that same vein, uh, and 
and I'll direct this at you, Nathan. Uh, some of the archaeological discoveries that have been made uh, have made strong impressions on modern interpretations of scripture. Uh, some of the big ones, like the Enuma Elish, mm-hmm. um, or the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, you know, those are things that uh, I think a lot of people have heard about. So, uh, could you compare commentary on scriptural passages? kind of before and after a major archaeological discovery to show the impact of that? Yeah, yeah, I think I could. And again, I'll ask Luke for help on the particularly archaeological, because again, I mean, my thought process on this has more to do with, you know, a sort of composite change in historical consciousness uh, sometime in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. And I, I haven't focused as strongly on archaeology, archaeology in particular, but two examples that, that come readily to mind are, uh, like David said, the Enuma Elish, when this text is really started to, has, when this text gets translated, there we go, uh, and when people start to realize that the literary structure of that text and the literary structure of Genesis 1 uh, have some striking similarities. Uh, really, the scriptural commentaries start to shift towards, all right, perhaps we ought to think of Genesis 1 as a polemical text taking a stand over against religious phenomena that are already going on in the region. And I mean, that's a very different approach from thinking that Genesis is not only a text about the first things, but also that it is the first text that arises concerning those things. And, you know, one of the things about some of the older commentaries is that, you know, they tried to treat Genesis 1 as a sort of prolegomenon to a systematic treatment of God. Once we've got Enuma Elish in the picture, we realize that the system was already there. What Genesis is doing is, you know, to use a, I'm going to use a C.S. Lewis image here, David, so watch yourself, uh, <laughs> you know, is it is taking that myth and it is bringing the truth to it or bringing the truth out of it. Uh, so, I mean, the, the overall approach to it uh, is really quite different. You know, the other one that uh, immediately rises to my mind is, and I should have looked up the name of this cave. Luke, you might be able to help me on this. Uh, the cave where they discovered the painting of uh, Yahweh and his Asherah. Uh, oh, go yes. ahead, Luke. Uh, I can't recall the name. I think it's down in the Sinai Peninsula, though. Oh, is it real? I see. I thought it was in pa- Palestine. I think it's in the Sinai. I have to look that up. Hey, I I trust you more than I trust myself on this. So, uh, you know, but at any rate, you know, again, this is proof positive that when the prophets are writing as they do, when the Deuteronomic historian is writing as he does, you know, there are genuine phenomena against which they are reacting. So, you know, David, to give you a sort of big picture of what changes, I think that there's more of a historical uh, imagination now that highlights Israel's position as a religious minority, even in the monarchical period, but especially once you get into the exilic period, uh, that really sort of shapes the way that we look at these texts. These are not establishment texts. These are, in a way, sort of revolutionary texts. And I I think we do have archaeology to thank for a great deal of that. I mean, Luke, would you want to follow up on that any? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the Bible... Yeah, I don't think it ever claims to be the the standard by which every other text is compared. Um, uh huh. Yeah, I, I, it does reflect. I even the Bible itself kind of admits that. You know, it describes Israel as the least of all the peoples, mm-hmm. and of course they had their beliefs, and there may be divergent beliefs or you know, uh, other beliefs around there. And so it's 
it's uh yeah there it was a the context of the Bible, it's just hinted at in the Bible itself, but archaeology uncovers other texts, other stories, other cultures, um, other things that diverge and in some ways, though, parallel the Bible as well. But it does show uh, what the Hebrews had. You know, um, uh, it, it's one of many versions of things, I guess, if you want to look at Yeah, yeah that's that a time. good way to put it. Not that it means that I'm, I have fa- I, I believe the Bible. I'm a Bible believer, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I put faith in the Bible, and I don't look at it as just another ancient book. Oh, sure, but, sure. I wasn't yeah, trying to but, say uh, that. What but, I'm but saying it, but, is that yeah. the shape of what it means to believe the Bible mm-hmm. is different when you imagine ancient Israel not as the first kids on the block and, you know, therefore right. the ones who set the rules, but rather these are people who arrive on a scene that is already well established mm-hmm. with a new proclamation about the true God who is, in a sense, reclaiming a world that has fallen from true worship. Exactly. You know, in, in other words, and, you know, I realize that's a very Calvinist sounding account, but frankly, but, I think that's the picture that biblical archaeology gives me. I, You know, Luke, I mean... You can comment that on, on that as you will. Well, I think the Bible suggests that when there, when it, the Bible tells of the Israelites coming into Canaan, the land of milk uh-huh. and honey, it paints them as sort of behind. I, and the, the spies go in and find these great cities and prosperous, you know, farms and vineyards and olive groves, and it's beyond anything that they can they can't imagine how on earth they're going to be able to take on these people. They're bigger, they're stronger, they're better technology, and um, and that's a plot point in the Bible and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and the Bible supports that, that the Israelites, archaeologically, it supports it. They, they were not the most advanced or cultured people uh, a lot of the time. They were kind of behind in a lot of ways, uh, right. and they had to kind of play catch up. Right. And I guess, David, I'll, I'll turn this to you. I mean, I think that there is a, a trend both in rabbinic and Christian commentary in the pre-modern period, you know, when archaeology isn't as developed a science or isn't really a science at all, that says that, you know— the Greek philosophers must have gotten their wisdom from Moses, you know. Absolutely. The, you know, Philo all of Alexandria these people who says do that. what now? Yes. Philo of Alexandria says. Okay, that. so you know, I yeah. mean, I, I think that you know, biblical archaeology, along with everything else, all the other cool things it does, disabuses us of that questionable reading of history. Right. right. I mean, I have a book on my shelf uh, right now entitled uh, "Homer or Moses." which uh, is basically about the, particularly the early Christian fathers, but, you know, following in Philo's footsteps, um, arguing that that the Hebrews were, pre- uh, that the Hebrew Bible represented the most ancient tradition. Yeah. Um, so that when... Good, I, uh, I knew I wasn't making this up. <laughs> right, so that when you look at, at uh, Jerome's Chronicon, which is his universal timeline of history, in which he takes uh, Greek, uh, uh, Babylonian, Assyrian, Egyptian, and Roman histories, or what was left of those histories, and tries to lay them on a timeline alongside that of the Hebrew Bible. And you can see he, he's, he's placing you know Noah's flood story as... You know that's that's the first one, and Deucalion. Well, that's a sad imitation. That that mm-hmm. that Roman flood story. It's a, it's a it's a it's a sad rehash of this uh, this this original story. Right. Um, so, in some senses, I mean, biblical archaeology is one of the things that lets us tell the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan has always been the true king, but he has to return to a land that has been in winter for a long time. Yes. 
I think I that's think two C.S. Right. Lewis references, by the way, in one episode from me. Well, well done, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I, I mentioned this earlier, Luke, um, about uh, the particularly Egyptian chronology. Um, so I think we can we can shift to this. Uh, we, we've seen the relevance of archaeology to biblical interpretation, but the relationship between uh, – and, and I'm going to say this particularly Christian biblical studies. I'm not talking about the kinds of biblical studies that might happen in a department of religion uh, that's uh, you know, o- only interested in comparing uh, the Bible with other books of, of sacred texts. Um, Christian biblical studies and mainstream archaeology have had uh, rocky relationships, uh, particularly on issues of chronology. Um, could you point out some of the, the major conflicts that have come up in these? Sure. Um, I guess as far as chronology, there are, I guess, two big ones that things focus around. One is you're talking about Egypt. Uh, the date of the Exodus is one. Um and there are basically two, school, two schools of thought on uh, when that might have occurred. One um, puts the Exodus in the 1400s BC, the mid 1400s, uh, and that's based on some numbers from the Bible. Uh, it gives when Solomon's dedicating the temple, it says it was 480 years after you know events in the Exodus. Another place in Judges, uh, the judge Jephthah refers to Israel having been there for 300 years, and so based on those numbers. And so that, that's, that's part of the argument. There are other factors. Some archaeology suggests that as well. Uh, puts the Exodus in the 1400s BC. Uh, the other school of thought puts it roughly a couple centuries later in the 1200s. And that's based on some archaeology as well and maybe more of the status of Egypt in that time. Egypt was weaker and uh, it seems to fit their growing weakness in the Exodus story. They don't chase him into Canaan. Canaan seems to be a little more independent of Egypt in some ways. And um, there, there's a lot of debate on which one of those is correct. And uh, I, I lean towards the earlier date, the 1400s, but I, I could be wrong. Um, but that, that's, that's one of the big uh, chrono- chronological disputes. When did the Exodus occur? Uh, we know Israel is there. Whatever, we know there's an Israel there by the late 1200s. There's uh, an inscription in Egypt uh, called the Renepta inscription. He was the son of Ramses II. And in this inscription, he uh, describes a military campaign he made into Canaan. And he mentions having defeated Israel up in Canaan. So we know that by huh. 1210, 1209, something like that, B.C., Egypt is referring to an Israel in Canaan that they defeated in some kind of military expedition. The Bible doesn't really talk about that expedition. But we know they're there by that point. And so uh, that's, I guess, the thing to pin them down. No later than that. The question is, mm-hmm. when, before that, then they get there. Aren't there archaeologists who doubt the existence of an exodus altogether? There are some, and uh, and there are, there are different theories debated. Uh, one of them, I, I, there are at least three schools of thought on that. One believes that the Israelites just sort of, uh, came, they came in from across you know, the river and, uh, and they, from the east, and they may have had maybe a few of them who had been from Egypt, but they were just kind of other people. They just kind of adopted the story. Uh, there's another school of thought, um, I guess a Marxist school of thought, that uh, has considered that they are the result of a slave uprising in Canaan, that the underclass exploited. They, uh, they rose up against their Canaanite masters and uh, won some measure of independence, at least in the hill country. And then later on, they kind of developed this 
heritage that this mythology for themselves as having come out of Egypt. And um, you know, different school there yeah, some some question the Exodus. And they cite a lack of evidence from Egypt about it as one of their key things. Egypt doesn't talk about it. But of course, on the other side, pharaohs were not known to record their failures for all of posterity to see. In fact, the, the Bible is rather unusual in that among ancient documents. The, yes. the failures come up far more than the, than the victories, in the, in the, especially in the Old Testament. Oh, yes, uh -huh. yes. <laughs> oh, that's why, well, just brief sideline, but uh, that's one of the nice things about... Um, the, the, the religion of the, the Hebrew people that we see in the Old Testament, it's not a religion that's necessarily in the service of the kings, mm -hmm. um, but will in fact, you know, speak, speak back to the king when the king is uh, uh, straying. Um, well, uh, I think, you know, no, knowing that there are, you know, there are, there are places, you know, like like we like we just brought up, did the Exodus even happen? Things like that, um, and that has uh, you know serious implications for for how uh, we interpret the Bible, and particularly what uh, what theologians do with that. So, um, and I'll direct this at you, Nathan. Uh, what kinds of th uh, reactions have theologians had to? these kind of apparent conflicts between what archaeology seems to be telling us about the past and what the Bible seems to be saying. Well, there are a few major schools of thought on that. And of course, the rise of what we think of as Protestant liberalism is coincident with the rise of scientific archaeology uh, with sort of post-Hegelian, high modernist history, all of these sorts of things. Uh, and so one of the responses uh, is to say that whatever is going on in the text of the Bible, it has very little to do with uh, anything that we would call a historical record, the way that, you know, say, uh, Donald Kagan's history of the Peloponnesian, or, yeah, Peloponnesian War uh, is a historical investigation. Uh, instead, what we've got is, you know, in various schools of thought, a mythology of Israel or a... Um, a sort of etiology of how we got here uh, and the facts don't matter all that much. So, I mean, that's sort of one school that strongly divorces what you can find on the ground with a pickaxe and a trowel from what you can find in the text of the scriptures. And, you know, that, in my mind, sort of the embodiment of that approach is William Deaver. Uh, he came and gave a, a series of lectures at Milligan College when I was a senior there. Uh, and taught me very quickly that I'm not that sort of a thinker. Uh, now, another approach to it, and one that I find, frankly, more promising, is one that actually tries to do Christian theology with the data that have come out of biblical archaeology. And it's the sort of thing that I was alluding to earlier, but you know, just to give one strong example of what's going on there, you know, for instance... Uh, Walter Brueggemann, who's one of the theologians whom I read a great deal, uh, is convinced, you know, that a theology that takes the Old Testament seriously uh, really does have to start out as a polyvocal history. And for that reason, you know, he devotes different sections of his big monster 600-page theology of the Old Testament to various parts of the Old Testament, 
Now, the way that that links back to archaeology, of course, is that he places those things in conversation with the things that we have discovered in the surrounding regions, in those superpowers like Egypt and Babylon, Assyria, Persia. Uh, he always insists that Israel is, from its inception, bearing witness to the other nations. You know, that's a theme that echoes through the prophets, of course, gets amplified in the life of Jesus, uh, and especially in Paul when he takes, and very few, few people notice this, is that, you know, when Paul calls himself a an apostle to the Gentiles, all he is doing is echoing what Jeremiah calls himself at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, right? Uh, you know, this idea that there are nations to which the text of the scripture are bearing witness means that understanding better what those nations are all about is going to influence what kind of witness the Bible is bearing. All right. Uh, and, you know, and then of course there's, I, you know, I, I shouldn't skip over this without mentioning it. I mean, there is a reactionary school that tries to say, you know, precisely the things you're saying, David, that, you know, the, the archeological profession as a whole is some sort of grand conspiracy that in fact, the biblical texts were the oldest things out there uh, that, you know, this idea that the Bible is reacting to something else is somehow diminishing the authority of the Bible. Uh, you know, both of those sort of extremes, the one that says because the Bible's not the, the oldest, it's completely irrelevant, and then the kind that says, well, if the Bible's not the oldest, it's completely irrelevant, so therefore it must be the oldest. I don't find those two very promising. I find a lot more promising the idea of taking the archaeological practice, moving forward with it theologically, and reading the text of the Bible with some fresh eyes informed by that archaeological practice. David, I'm, I'm rambling on. What would you add to that? Um, well, uh, I guess one thing that, that I would add to it as kind of an example that I think uh, supports this idea in a very, you know, kind of concrete and local way. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, I looked up um, what Calvin's commentary said about Psalm uh, Psalm 89:10, which uh, in modern translations talks of talk about the Lord God of hosts who rules the raging sea and stills the waves and has broken Rahab in pieces. Ah, if you read Calvin's commentary, uh, what the the Latin translation that he's using uh, doesn't say Rahab; it says Egypt. And so he his his commentary on this text from Psalm 89. Is uh, that it's it's a memory of the crossing of the Red Sea, hmm. in which God is calming the sea and humbling Egypt. Um, but uh, I, I think if if we look at this text and then reflect on various stories, both Mesopotamian and Canaanite, about gods who fight uh, the primal monsters of the deep, right? Um, you know, we 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 end up seeing. You know, Israel imagining their God as the one who really, who who is the real conqueror, who is the real victor in these, in in this matter. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and so, yeah, that's that's just kind of a real, a real local, uh, specific instance of the kind of difference that can make. Uh, and I, personally, I like Psalm eighty nine ten much better if I'm imagining those particular verses as the psalmist looking at the Babylonians, looking at the Canaanites telling their stories and saying, nope, our God, he's the one that did that. <laughs> right, right. 
And I think that, you know, influences the shape of our own modern mythologies. You know, I've already mentioned the Chronicles of Narnia, but you can look at uh, the Lord of the Ring as, as an example of another of that sort of mythology, right? You know, where the world is a dark place, not because it was created dark, but because it has fallen, <clears throat> you know. I, certainly that consciousness is present in Calvin and Luther and Thomas Aquinas, but I think it gets heightened in the modern period so that novels like the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings are more intelligible in our period because of archaeology than they would have been in the 15th century, the 17th century, you know, certainly the, the 9th century. Mm. Is there anything you want to say in reaction to this, Luke? I guess I've never reconsidered um, the relationship of uh, those particular things that you're referring to. I'm an ancient historian. I haven't done as much with Calvin uh, personally. <laughs> but, uh, I have done a little bit recently. But um, uh, as a, just come back to a point we mentioned about, um, about uh, the Israelites, I guess, in relation to witnessing to other nations. Uh, the Bible doesn't claim to have been the like in Genesis. It, I don't think it ever makes a claim that that was the first story written down. Oh no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, there, there are texts we found, you know, of uh, you know Babylonian creation stories, and you know, and the Bab- you know, uh, the, the flood up epic of uh, Gilgamesh, Utnapishtim, and his ark, uh, and those written texts were written down before the Genesis text was written down. But they they spring from you know I believe they spring from a common source, and. Um, you know, and uh, the Hebrews are telling everyone, you know, the stories you have, you know, there are some similarities, but this is the right one. You know, God is, you know, it was God, uh, as we know him, who uh, did these things and not your versions of it. Mm-hmm. Archaeology has revealed a lot of that to us there, and it gives us more a context to understand some of those things. Cool. Well, um, yeah, let's shift from that um, to something much more specific. And the the particular dig site that you've worked with, Luke, um, uh, Kirbet Kif- uh, Kiafa, I believe that's yes. Kirbet Kiafa. Yep. All right. I've been waiting all week to hear that pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. It's got Q's and KH's and all these other things. Um, anyway, the, I, I think it's it's good to kind of focus our conversation on on a on a specific site that's relevant to these conflicts, um, particularly uh, a, a specific conflict of chronology, I believe. Yes. Um, so if you could, can you describe Kirbat Kiafa, um, the discoveries uh, that have been made there, and what their significance are, uh, or their significance is to uh, the discussion that we've been having? Sure. Well, uh, the location has a great biblical connection. Quebec Kiafa is a fortified city that uh, dates to the time of King David, and it's uh, at the location where David and Goliath fought in the Bible on the Philistine-Israelite border. So the location pulls it into the Bible story. Uh, it's on a hilltop overlooking the Elah Valley, and, and look at the geographical description in the Bible in 1 Samuel 17 of David and Goliath that mentions cities and landmarks, and there's a brook down there at the foot, and all that's right there. Uh, so it's at that spot, and every day you look over and see the biblical battlefield. That was probably a battlefield for many, many times in antiquity. You know, it relates to the chronology thing you mentioned. Another big, I guess the other big chronology question is about King David. Um, when did he reign? Did he reign? Uh, was he actually a king? And uh, there have been different schools of thought on that. 
Uh, in fact, there was a time when people even doubted whether he even existed because they never found any mention of him outside the Bible. A lot of the debates over the Bible and archaeology come down to things that have not been found, which you know, which creates interesting situations because sometimes someone finds it and then you know that changes the whole the debate there. And David is a case of that. Back in the 80s in Copenhagen, of all places, a group of scholars began publishing and saying, you know, David's never mentioned outside the Bible. Maybe he never existed, and that became a pretty popular thing until in the mid-90s, someone found David's name in an inscription from Syria. And so now, okay, we have his name mentioned, the House of David, the Dynasty of David, written about 150 or so years after he would have lived. So now David exists. Now the question is, we've the Bible describes this great kingdom he has. And, uh, of course, kingdoms have governments. They build things. They define their borders. And But we look in archaeology. We can't find anything in Israel in the time of David, about 1,000 B.C. There's nothing there that suggests there is any organized state building things and doing things, no inscriptions, no evidence of record-keeping or taxes or fortified cities or anything, just you know, Bedouins and their villages and things like that. And so the big question then is, when did Israel become a kingdom? The Bible says it did under David, really, more or less, about 1000 B.C. But some archaeologists began saying, no, about 100 years later, perhaps, is what we think it actually happened. And they kind of took this person named David, who maybe he was a chieftain, and kind of created a story about him that was bigger than it really was. Well, Kirbet Kiafa, um, basically, it's a, big fortifi it's a fortified, planned city that's in a place and a time period where it's not supposed to be, if you question hmm. the count. Um, many archaeologists have questions. You know, the Bible says there's an organized state. We can't find anything in David's time in that place. But now all of a sudden we have. It's this fortified city um, about a, they estimate it would have taken about 10 years to build. The fortifications, the outer walls are very well preserved. Uh, about 8 feet high in a lot of places still. Um, and uh, they they think it, the, the weight of the stones would have been equivalent of about uh, two modern aircraft carriers. You know, it's a huge amount of weight uh, of wow. stone in the fortifications. And yet the, the site's only big enough for a few hundred people. So a few hundred people couldn't build something that big um, by themselves. And so it's evidence that some, some organized state collected resources and workmen and, and spent 10 years building this fortress there. Um, it's, a, it's a defensive fortress on the highway between the Philistine city of Gath and the highway to Jerusalem, um, and Hebron, Hebron, Judah. So it appears to be there to protect the border, to guard the highway. Right. Uh, so all of a sudden we have this big city uh, from the Israelite period on the Israelite-Philistine border. And uh, who built it? Well, look at it, and the material culture, the pottery and the design, the architecture, it's not Philistine. Uh, it's on the border. Gath is only six miles away, but there's nothing Philistine about the city, so it belongs to someone else. And the only other people known to have been there are Israelites, and there are some connections at the site uh, that connect them to the Israelites. So it looks like there's there are Israelites building a planned, fortified city with centralized planning and resources in a time when the Bible says there's a kingdom capable of doing that. So basically, it looks like it could be evidence for an Israelite kingdom when the Bible says it actually started. Right, and moreover, if it's close to Hebron, that's what the Old Testament lists as David's administrative capital for most of his early kingship. 
it's not really close to Hebron, but uh, but it's oh, okay, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's but it's on the highway that leads to to Hebron from Philistine gotcha. territory. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it's on the border. So if you want to keep out the Philistines, you build a fortress right where you put Kirbet Kiafa. You can it's on a hill. You can see everywhere. You can control the highways and keep the Philistines out, hopefully, or keep someone out. Mm-hmm. Well, and also granting the um, you know the the, the narrative. Uh, the, uh, of 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 uh, I believe of second uh, second Samuel is that first, that first Samuel seven for, for, yeah yeah first Samuel um, you know grant, granted the narrative about the David and Goliath fight um, it, it would also have uh, presumably had strong symbolic um, mm-hmm. implications of being located there a a uh, in a Hebrew fortification on the site of uh, a major symbolic. Uh, victory of Hebrews over uh, over the Philistines. Yes, yeah. That's. Uh, I keep joking that we're going to uncover a museum there with you know, the stone. Um, that was. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't yet. We have found some sling stones, but uh, yeah, it's a very symbolic, very central site to Israel's history. You know that battlefield, and there's this fortress there. Uh, the big thing they found there is an inscription on a piece of pottery. And um, they've had trouble translating it because the ink is faded, but it date, it's about 3,000 years old. They can tell by the layer it was found in and by the style of the writing, it's about 3,000 years old. Uh, many of the initial epigraphers uh, believe it's Hebrew. Some are not sure. It's definitely not a Philistine language. It's a, Philistines are from a different family of languages. But um, you know, there's still a lot of debate over how to translate the inscription or if we'll ever really be able to translate it with any certainty. But um, it indicates people are writing things down. There's some sort of something being written down there. Some have questioned whether the Israelites were even a literate society in David's time. Um, they've never found any inscriptions in Hebrew or what can be identified as Hebrew from David's time. And if, if Israel's not literate in David's time, there are big implications. You know, Psalms, history, law codes that you know were written down in the Bible. But now we have something written down. Uh, in the time of David, so there's evidence they could write things down at least, which uh, affirms what the Bible is indicated. And um, so those inscriptions, Luke. I mean, I, I I do remember people mentioning Paleo Hebrew inscriptions. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that the same family that this comes from, or is this a still unidentified uh, script? Yeah, the the script itself is pretty certain. It's um. It's gone through a couple different names. I'm not an epigrapher. They used to call it Proto Canaanite. Okay, uh, but but um, basically, it's all these languages shared the same alphabet, kind of like English and Spanish and French. We use a lot right. of the same letters, but different languages. Back then, Hebrew was one language that shared an alphabet with several others. Later on, the alphabet evolved to be very specific to Hebrew, you know, with the letters that we know and love. But uh, back in David's time, it wasn't there yet. Uh, they still okay. shared an earlier version of an alphabet with other languages, uh, Phoenicia, you know, Canaanite scripts. But uh, the form of the grammar that they can read, uh, several think it is Hebrew, in fact. And uh, in that area, it would probably be Hebrew, but I don't think there's really a uh, 100% consent on that yet. I don't know of any others that have been put forth as, you know, no, it's not Hebrew, but it's this instead. Think, okay, uh, okay. Not, and no. see, so, uh, what, what little archaeology I learned was from an epigrapher, so I <laughs> yeah, obviously I didn't pay enough attention. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it sounds like a hor- uh, a terribly complicated subject to begin with, and one in which you know what name you give, uh, you 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 decide to assign this mysterious cipher that 
you you don't understand what it is. The name that you give it is already an interpretation, you know. Oh sure. Yeah. yeah. They um they think they've identified the excavators believe the site is um called Sharaim. It's mentioned towards the end of the David and Goliath story, but not everyone has agreed on that yet. But um, that's what they think it means. That, that they think it's the city of Sharaim. And with more time, we may know. Maybe we'll find the doorpost. You know, welcome to Sharaim or whatever the city. <laughs> We're always looking for something like that. We're looking for other inscriptions. Other inscriptions would be nice to find. Yeah. They're pretty rare, but uh, we're going to be digging this next season in the center of the site, and maybe there's an archive or something there. Maybe that would be nice to find. It might clear some things up. It does appear to be an Israelite site, though, and one of the biggest arguments is animal bones. Um, we we found thousands of bones of sheep and goats and fish and birds. Not a single pig bone yet. Hmm. So uh, Canaanite and Philistine cities, about 20, 25% of your animal bones from people's dinner are is pork, you know, pig bones. And we haven't found a single pig bone there. So they appear to be keeping kosher at uh, the hmm. city. Which is, a, which, uh, which is itself uh, really significant that, uh, you know, it, particularly if you, if you have the – if you've taken the view of, of the law um, as, as laid down in the Pentateuch as, as something – uh, written much later, uh, post-exilic or exilic, um, this seems to be definitely pre-exilic Israelites who are um, observing uh, some of those stipulations. They're not digging on no pork. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no bacon with their eggs. <laughs> which is which is kind of sad, but you know I understand. Um, now, I, I I'm encouraged. By the discoveries that, that that you've been discussing, Luke, because I I tend to uh, be on the side of things that that looks at Old Testament nor- narratives more as historically accurate accounts, but that tends to make me susceptible also to a particular kind of bad biblical archaeology, um, you know, hoaxes and well-intentioned mistakes that. Uh, a lot of times in in Christian circles get held up as the proof. Of the Bible, um, and you know, I, I I must confess that that there are some of those that, that that I've fallen for. You know, when I was a teenager, I found I, I read a book where a guy claimed that he'd found Noah's Ark, and I was like, sweet. We were told that Noah's Ark is still on top of Mount Ararat, but Turkey, being a country of evil Muslims, won't let us go up there and bring it down because it would prove that Judaism and therefore Christianity, and apparently therefore not Islam was true in spite of the fact that muslims also believe in noah and the flood i didn't i I didn't say this was a good theory i just said this is the theory i was told in 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 high school i was gonna say that is a shaky understanding of islam yes (laughs) a shaky understanding of almost everything well can you share some i mean can you cite some examples of things like this luke Sure. Well, Noah's Ark was found again a year or two ago, if you read the news, by a group of people from China, from Hong Kong, I believe. But um, every t- every few years, someone finds Noah's Ark, and it's amazing how often uh, that those times that someone in the group happens to be a filmmaker or has a book ready to sell about it. Um, <laughs> huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Chinese cynical, the put, cynical put, among us would suggest that, that those two facts are related and not just a coincidence. <laughs> oh no, no, no. That took me a second to figure out. I'm like, filmmaker, why would that be important? <laughs> well, if you look at these fantastic discoveries like Noah's Ark, uh, it's 
usually someone in there is a filmmaker or is planning a film or is planning a book. And these people, not they, they never, almost never have any real archaeological training. Um, they're, you know, religious people. They're, you know, they like archaeology of, by watching Indiana Jones movies or, you know, whatever. But they don't have any degrees or training in archaeology. It's always the same. It's usually the same kinds of people. And on Noah's Ark, just one thing uh, someone told me once I thought was very good. Uh, people in ancient times recycled all the time. I'm not, not you know, they're, they're Coke bottles. But, um... <laughs> no, but but rock and timber and building materials. Um, if you look at the pyramids, they're missing almost all of their outer layer of stones. One of them still has like looks like a little cap on top. It's the casing stones. They're originally a very s- smooth exterior, uh, but the city of Cairo uh, back in the Ottoman period, the residents of Cairo used the pyramids as a quarry, and they took off all these outer casing stones and built Cairo with them. So um, you know oh, that's that's, that's so I guess, a more recent example. Right, but, and, that, no, and the city no, of Babylon too, right, Luke? I mean, yeah. from what I read, I mean, the reason that it took so long to discover it is that it had literally been carried off brick by brick by all of its neighbors. Yeah. Well, with Noah's so, Ark, um, one thing that someone pointed out to me, after a big flood like that, timber's going to be scarce. And so is the Ark still going to be there, or was it recycled into firewood and houses and animal pens and all that? You have all this pre-cut lumber just right there. And uh, so, not only I that, th- I am skeptical that uh, timber is going to survive for thousands of years. Uh, yeah, my understanding is that wood typically rots. <laughs> yeah, that's my experience. <laughs> Another recent, uh, I guess, fraud. Uh, did you hear about uh, the announcement that the, na- the naked archaeologist on TV discovered or identified the nails that were used in Jesus' crucifixion? Oh. Uh, did he find him in an Orthodox church somewhere? No, amazingly this time, no. No, that's where you'd think they'd be found. Some kind of he found them. He claims they were found in the tomb of Caiaphas, the high priest. Um, and his rationale, basically, that uh, when they excavated, they did find what looks like to be Caiaphas' tomb, and uh, the box where his bones are placed. That actually seems to be real. They excavated it a couple decades ago, or something like that. But there are these nails that were found in there. That were just kind of ignored and glossed over and taken to storage. And the guy who calls himself the naked archaeologist, Simcha Jakovovich, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Uh, he has a half-hour cable program. He's not naked when he does it, by the way. But uh, it's against <laughs> ratings. But he claims that because these nails were placed in Caiaphas' tomb, Caiaphas was associated with Jesus' crucifixion. Therefore, these must have been the nails used during Jesus' crucifixion. And that's basically his argument. Foolproof. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Airtight. There's one, there's one little problem, for one, I and mean, several, but one, the nails are actually not long enough to be used in a crucifixion. They're just like two or three inches. Um. <laughs> Jesus would have immediately fallen off. Maybe he was talking about Jesus the hamster instead of Jesus the savior of mankind. <laughs> that might have more credibility. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's The same guy put out a few years ago this lost tomb of Jesus, which has been debunked pretty thoroughly uh-huh. by other Claimed to have found the family tomb. The, the naked archaeologist, by the way, he's not actually an archaeologist. He got his bachelor's degree in philosophy and his master's degree in international relations. And now he learned how to be a filmmaker. But there's no archaeological training in there. But he calls himself an archaeologist anyway. So there's something. I mean, these guys on TV, the, arche- the actual archaeologists never make TV shows. It's filmmakers. <laughs> <who make them. laughs> and so they may you know, talk with archaeologists. Archaeologists don't get the final say on what the program has. 
So uh, one that's very recent, um, they found these lead books, these lead codices. That's just been in the past month or two. Basically, these very small book type of things that they say are maybe a couple thousand years old may shed light on the earliest days of Christianity. They're about The pages are about the size of a credit card. But there's always controversy, like uh, some Bedouin has them, and now they're being hidden away. But only a certain, only a few people have been allowed to look at them. But they apparently had been confirmed as being, you know, seventeen, eighteen hundred years old, and they may shed light into Jesus. Been a lot of hype in the media about it, but um, no one involved in those is actually an archaeologist, uh, kind of like the naked archaeologists. They're not actually. And the guys, there's a married couple, uh, the Elkingtons, who are at the center of all this and have been putting out the press releases. And they've restricted any access. And surprise, they're actually uh, writing a book they want you to buy uh, if, um, about it. But um, this, uh, a lot of uh, specialists in the blogosphere actually have looked at photos and identified problems with these lead books. Um, there's a Greek inscription in there which actually was lifted from a, a funerary inscription in a museum in, Arma, in Amman, Jordan. Uh, they some guy who didn't know Greek just copied some of that inscription apparently and misspelled some, miswrote some letters. And that's some of this, quote, ancient inscription on these lead plates. It looks to be a relatively recent forgery by several measures. But uh, the media gets it and runs with it and doesn't check it. So mm. That reminds me about another story about a certain gentleman in upstate New York from old metal plates in the ground. <laughs> oh. Made up a religion about it, even. Uh, but he was an archaeologist, from my understanding. He'd been rigorously trained. <laughs> yes, yes. Indiana Joseph Smith. Didn't uh, James Cameron, the director of Titanic, have uh, have some archaeological film he put out a few years ago? Uh, that was the Lost Tomb of Jesus. Okay, okay. He part he partnered with the naked archaeologist on that. James Cameron. His archaeological training consists of making that film, I think. <laughs> well, he also made a film about uh, about going down and looking at the Titanic or something. So obviously he's a brilliant man. Well, there you go. That qualifies him to, yeah, <laughs> in, in a Roman and Greco-Roman and Iron Age archaeology. That's it, it must right really make you angry when you see things like that. When you, when you see, as you say, that all the supposed archaeologists on television and the movies are really just filmmakers who don't, who don't uh, have any training. That, that, really must, that really must get under your skin. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't get angry about, it, can't get too angry because otherwise you'd spend, you know, every press release, you know, just building your fury and die a bitter, lonely man. And but, on the on the other hand, it does mean that your profession is so respected that people are willing to. I mean, nobody's pretending to be a college English professor because we don't have any actual power, but archaeologists are apparently respected enough to pretend to be one. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there's. Uh, it used to be thought they were just, you know dusty you know, people who had their cats but Indiana Jones changed the perception to some just I'm not actually an archaeologist myself I've been involved in some I, I'm not trained as one per se so I wouldn't call myself an archaeologist either uh, that's not my profession I'm actually a minister but uh, I, I'm an ancient history uh, I'm an ancient historian but that necessarily doesn't that by itself doesn't make me an archaeologist um, I've been able to get some experience and done a lot of study there are others far more qualified to talk David just doesn't know any of them. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and uh, who is who, you're working at a dig that's being supervised by reputable archaeologists? Yes. And is, uh, I mean, who is that, by the way? Uh, the chief archaeologist where I am, he's a, a professor of archaeology at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. His name is uh, Yusef or Yossi Garfinkel. 
he's uh, he's most of his career was spent in prehistoric archaeology before he came to this site. But we have several other archaeologists who've been associated with this as well. My first year out there, we had um, the chief archaeologist of Masada come out there and work with us. In fact, he was my first boss. His name is Dr. Guy Stiebel, and uh, he, he's in charge of the excavations at Masada down by the Dead Sea, where the Jews you know, killed themselves, according to Josephus, rather than surrender to the Romans. But, um, he, but other archaeologists have been involved, and they're all trained. Oh, you have to get a license. Uh, in fact, there's a great quote I found. Um, there's an archaeologist in Jerusalem, Ronnie Reich. He said, uh, basically, archaeology uh, is the only science only field of science apart from human experimentation that requires a license from the government uh, for you to do it because you can only, you can only do it one time. Um, if you if just anyone goes out there with their shovel, they'll destroy it permanently. So uh, the government over there, and in most places, government carefully controls who's allowed to head up excavations. Right. And uh, yeah, well, it's our, like it's like a dissection. <laughs> yeah. And you it, and you only have one specimen. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. It's, <laughs> like, so you have to people you know, train for years to be able to head an excavation. They have to get a license and be approved by the government agency. So um, yeah, we we're we're under good caretakers. So if we see those guys on a TV show, we can we can trust them. Not not naked guys or James Cameron. <laughs> you want to look for that doctor, I imagine. Yeah, of course. You just want to hope that if they when they get the real ones on there, they don't edit them too much for their own purposes. You know. I, you can do amazing things in a cutting in a with a cutting floor, fill it up with good stuff, manipulate. You know. But uh, yeah, I mean that's a good sign if they have a lot of real archaeologists on there. That's that's a good sign. It doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily conclude things, you know, as filmmakers the way they should because they want ratings. They they always want to look at the documentaries. They always you know leave things kind of open and uncertain in the end because it makes for good ratings. But um, yeah. But there's right. a lot of fraud and a lot of misunderstanding, and uh, most of what you read in the media, newspapers or internet news sites, most of them get things wrong because they're writing their article. They may interview archaeologists, but they're not actually archaeologists themselves, and they may ignore key information or you know drop something important because it doesn't fit their story as well as they'd like. But that but that's true of news coverage of almost every science. Oh, no. Anytime, anytime oh, no. a news story tells you there's a connection between two things, according to science, what they mean is a couple of scientists have uh, discovered there is some vague relation in certain tests between <laughs> between two unrelated things from the two, the two things they say are connected in the uh, news story. Yeah, I, I suppose you're right. Yeah. <laughs> well, but you know, the, I, I don't think we would understand though the 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 articles if they had been written by the scientists themselves. We probably wouldn't be that interested in them. Is is my point? The, yeah. Those 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 news sources or news sites have a uh, vested interest in getting the information just a little bit wrong, because making it a little bit wrong also makes it a little bit more interesting. Yeah, uh, true. Archaeology has its you know professional journals, but um, but uh, it, it, something about it, especially biblical archaeology, it taps into the public consciousness more, so it, it has a connection to other sciences don't necessarily have so okay well i think uh we probably need to start wrapping things up um and so this uh, i want to leave our uh leave our audience with uh something to think about so to round this thing out um what kind of advice can you give our our listeners on how best to understand the relationship of archaeology to the bible 
so that we're neither losing our faith, um, you know, like like uh, uh, was discussed earlier, nor are we placing our faith in the wrong things, like you know Noah's Ark being found every you know every year or so. Um, we'll start with Luke and then just kind of work our way around. Well, archaeology is is a very subjective science. Basically, it's interpretation. And interpretation can be affected by one's assumptions coming into it. There's a saying in archaeology, uh, if you go, if you dig somewhere looking to find something, you'll find it. And does it, it means basically if you're looking to validate what you already want to find, you'll probably be able to do that with whatever you find. Um, it, it's very elastic and it takes very little to take one set of remains and interpret them two or three different ways, depending on what your you know, prejudices are. Uh, it's, not a, it's not an exact science. And you almost really never know anything with 100% certainty in archaeology. So it's just a tool. Archaeology isn't the basis for faith. It doesn't really prove anything. It illuminates. It uh, it you know creates context, helps us understand things. But in itself, it doesn't prove or disprove anything. In the end, we're never going to find enough of what used to exist to really give ourselves a fair representative sample. Most of what existed in the past is destroyed or will never be found. And so we only have a tiny fraction of anything to judge on. So um, ultimately, um, faith is faith. Archaeology is a tool, but it's not the final answer on anything. Mm. Nathan? Yeah, just to give the other side of that coin, certainly we shouldn't put all of our chips on the archaeology square of the roulette table. But on the other hand, uh, we also shouldn't run away from the things that archaeology does discover. Like I said before, some of the most interesting theology out of the last 60 or 70 years has arisen uh, precisely in light of discoveries about Israel's neighbors in the region and the early church's neighbors in the Roman world. So uh, certainly be willing as well to take seriously what archaeology legitimately discovers and to think about the relationship of God's people to God's world in light of what it finds. Michael? I'm going to split the difference there and give a piece of advice that's similar to what I think I said last summer when we talked about biology, which is be careful hanging your faith or lack of faith on the findings of archaeology because they you know, opinions change. Um, new information comes about. Old information is discredited. Interpretations change. Um, th- these are not things to hang 100% of your faith on. Right. Um, there, are things th- there are things to remain open-minded about on either side. Well, uh, I don't really have anything to add to that. Uh, I think good, <laughs> good advice all around. Um well, thank you, Luke, uh, for being our guest. Uh, yeah, thanks, I, Luke. It's a pleasure. I, thanks, it was great. I think this has been a, a good conversation. I hope uh, you, dear listeners, uh, have enjoyed and profited from it. Um, do we know what's going to be happening uh, in our July episode as of yet? Oh, I think we do. We're, uh, we're, you and I are going to read Nathan's book, and we're going to talk to him about it. Uh, Nathan Gilmore has published a book which you can re- you can get from Amazon if you're so inclined and if you're um, very wealthy <laughs> so we will we will be attempting you and I will be attempting to read that and attempting to a- uh, ask him questions about it next month i'm afraid it's going to be over my head but uh i'll do my best yeah well you're going to be helming the episode correct uh, 
I, I suppose I am, since you're doing this one, and Nathan can't very well helmet, can he? <laughs> <laughs> that would be a bit egotistical, yes. Well, he could, he, so, he could make Nathan. us read the book and then ask us questions about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It would be a recitation he could, session. He could, he he could, could give quit. us a quiz. A reading quiz. Um, well, that's what we're going to be doing in July. Uh, I look forward to that. Um, uh, I, I really don't know if that means I'm going to have to buy the book. Uh, I guess it does. Um, no, the I'll, money goes I'll to good files, David. Cool. <laughs> Thank you, because it's expensive. Yeah. All right. Well, um, with that wrapped up, uh, I hope you uh, hope everyone enjoyed the episode. Uh, if you have any comments or questions, uh, you can leave comments on the uh, the notes when they post on the blog, which is christianhumanist.org. Or you can send us email uh, feedback at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. In the meanwhile, um, I wish all of you grand weeks, and uh, we'll leave you with the words of Martin Luther, to uh, let your sin be strong, but to let your faith be stronger. My days of wishful thinking, soldiers of sorrow sinking,
dollar for your dime, just another night of laying low. I see the shovel in the hand of a wild-eyed man with a mission in the goal below. But I don't want to, you don't want to, we don't wanna know. And forgotten on the cross and the wicked and the loss and the lover of the tardy pole. So give a smile and a grin to the lunatic fringe, I'm a little tired of saying so. I see the spin and the twirl of a wide-eyed girl still digging for an honor soul. But I don't want to, you don't want to.